0: Amen. All right, if you'd open your Bibles to Exodus 13, we're going to start half of uh, 13 and then go through 14. Quite a bit of scripture today. We'll have it up on the board, so I know a lot of people are like, can't read, but the lights are so freaky that if you try to go up, they flicker and go crazy, so uh, we do our best. And <clears throat> So if you sit on that side, it's lighter, and it'll be up on the board, though, so uh, it'll be okay. Um as an English teacher, I've always been really curious or interested in language and just how words are used and making sure that uh, young high school students use words deliberately and intentionally because they like to use many words, including the F word as a verb, now an adverb, and just about anything else. As a compliment, as something negative, it can be anything. So words have become something that people have been very lazy about. And in our culture, it's, it's no different. There's all kinds of phrases and words that we either make up or we don't really know what they mean. And we've heard them used, so we use them. Or we've used them so much without explanation of what they actually mean that we don't, um, we don't know what they mean anymore. Uh, some of the words are just verbal fillers, like like and you know. Uh, the word nother, you other know, the word nother is not a word. Um, Just in case you're wondering, my bride told me that many times. And so there's other phrases in the world that have been kind of maybe more recent. Uh, The way a word gets in the dictionary is it's used uh, multiple times, specifically in publications. So Homer Simpson's dough is now in the dictionary because it's been used so much and it has a definition attached to it. But I'm thinking more of words that we pretend we know, like the word passion. Um, It's been used over and over again for people to describe crimes of passion. Uh, I am passionate about this or that. It's my passion, and I don't really know what they mean um, when it's used half the time. They like it. They dislike it. I don't know. The word diversity is uh, used all throughout the schools. Uh, They want to train for diversity, teach about diversity, and I don't know what they mean by diversity. I think I know in the schools it's pretty much you're diverse as long as you're not Christian, um, in my experience, then you become evil or something. I don't know. But the uh, there's a couple others. The term moral values, you hear that a lot in politicians' days. Like, you know, we, they just throw it out, moral values. Even the word faith uh, has been used oftentimes. The new word today, as they argue over this stimulus package, is being un-American. You're un-American if you do this, and un-American if you do that. So these phrases are used commonly in, in church culture, which... Um, is created oftentimes when the church separates itself from the world it's supposed to be reaching, and it creates its own tribal language. You probably have had this experience, and if you haven't, you'll recognize it. Um, If you're not a Christian and you've come into churches, oftentimes they speak in all kinds of words that they assume you understand, and you don't. Um, Brad is a great example. Uh, When he was first attending church, and I don't think he was a believer at the time, the word stumble was used from the pulpit many times and he turned to Matt, who I think was with him, and said, like, trip? Like, is that what we're talking about? And we used to assume that we, you know, know, it's going to cause you to stumble without explaining what that means. Um, Even phrases like uh, God's in control, very convenient, makes you feel fluffy inside, but if you don't ever explain it, you know, it doesn't do anything but that. Like, don't worry, God's in control. Have faith. I think I know what that means. I'm not really sure. So we use these terms... In, um in Christendom, all the time, they get uh, confusing. The one that I've been recently, uh, I guess, convicted by, if you will. So I'll probably use a lot of words that I don't explain, so I apologize. I'm trying to get better. I'm recovering what you would call a wordaholic or something. But a spiritual leader. Men are always called to be spiritual leaders. Be a spiritual leader. Lead your home. And I was charged with that for many moons and told men to do that. But I don't know if I could ever give a definition except a list of behaviors maybe you do. We don't know what it means. And so our second Adam groups are dedicated to like kind of fleshing that out and pretty much we figured out what it means to live like Jesus. So, how did Jesus leave and, or live? And then we study that. But those phrases have become uh, overused. The word hackneyed means it's so overused that it's lost its meaning. And one of those terms that I want to talk about today is the term in Christ. And when I say the term in Christ, many people think, well, that just means you're a Christian, it means that Jesus is your Savior. Without explaining that, Jesus is dwelling in your heart. Without explaining that, and so I like to have phrases and terms with the uh, the third grade test. And third grade test is if you can explain the concept to a third grader, then you probably understand the concept pretty well. But oftentimes we talk up here and and not really trying to really explain what we are saying, like we're speaking in cliches nonstop, assuming they understand what the cliche means. But being in Christ, I want to take this this image in this story that is very well known in all of culture, whether it be Christian or not, the story of the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea, and use that as a picture, if you will, of what it means to be in Christ. In John 5, Jesus says this, uh, 524, I believe, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And some translations use crossed over from death to life. And I want to talk about the concept of being in Christ, believing in Jesus, or being a Christian, whatever phrase you want to use, and use this picture of crossing over into something. Now, to say you're in Christ means at one point in your life you were not in Christ. You were in something else. Out of Christ, in something else. You're one or the other. Call it the world, call it sin, I don't know, but you're not in Christ. And so when you think or speak about being in Christ, Jesus speaks here to say it's a crossover from death to life. It's a crossover from being blind and now I see. It's a crossover from a life of despair to a life of joy. Not necessarily happiness, there's a difference. It's a crossover. And like the Israelites, we don't plan necessarily how or when we cross over, if you will. We kick and we scream and we doubt God as he, like the Israelites, led and as he leads us on the way that he intends and that he is pointing us toward. So we'll take this picture, and it's a beautiful story. It's kind of the climax of this smaller story and the larger story of our redemption. Exodus chapter 13 is where we'll begin in verse 17. I'm going to read a lot of Scripture because, as I said, i like to fill the air with God's words and not my own. Verse 17 in chapter 13. And we'll read to 22 begin with. It says, When Pharaoh, <clears throat> excuse me, let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness <clears throat> toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph, had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at, e- and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart. Before the people. So, Exodus, the story, the book begins with the reminder of the story of Joseph, which was the end of the book of Genesis. <clears throat> and in the Genesis chapter 50, you have the story of Joseph who, or the, the recording of Joseph speaking on his deathbed. Now, Joseph was a guy who basically was sold into slavery by his brothers and went through terrible experiences that were undeserved and, and really harsh. And yet, throughout it, he is committed to God, and even when his brothers who sold him into slavery are before him, and he could basically execute them, if he will, he forgives them and loves them and says, what you intended for evil, God used and intended for good. He planned it all. And so, at this point, Joseph is somewhat the hero of Egypt. He has saved them from the famine, and his brothers have come down, and so he ends up bringing his whole family down, And they live in Egypt, and eventually Joseph dies. And as he's dying, he says, Someday God will come and take you guys out of Egypt again and take me with you. And he dies, and they most likely mummify his body and put it in a coffin, and it sits there for many years. And as Exodus begins, Joseph is forgotten, and Israel is put into slavery, and they experience harsh slavery and a terrible oppression. As a result, their children are thrown into the Nile, and it's just horrific, and they've forgotten all who Joseph was um, in the past. But the story begins as they depart with remembering who they are, that this isn't some new beginning. This is the same God that promised God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Joseph, the God of Moses, the God of Solomon, the God of dana the God of Sam. It's the one story that's been told since the beginning. And we're reminded of that as they take his bones. And in Acts it says all the bones of the brothers with them on their journey to the promised land. And unexpectedly God doesn't lead them kind of over the route that they would seem as the obvious decision. He doesn't lead them straight into the land of the Philistine. In fact, he takes them south through a much longer route than would be the really short route into Canaan. And at this time, the road to up north most likely is guarded by many Egyptian garrisons and other nations, because that was the route that some of the warring nations may, they feared, would come through and join, and, and the Israelites would join them, and they would take over Egypt. So it's a, it's a place that most likely would see war and conflict pretty quickly. And they go out equipped, it says, for battle, and they do battle about four chapters later um, in Exodus 17, I believe, but... Most likely, when they say equipped from battle, I don't think that they were necessarily asking all the Egyptians for their weapons, because they asked whatever they asked for, they got as they left. But most likely, they're just organized. They're an organized group going out. And God knows that if they see war, they will change their minds and they will flee back. And the reason why he probably gives them some time is that it's a newborn nation. It's a young child, if you will, that is going out. And if they experience war, it would be similar to sending your seven-year-old into Afghanistan, you know, with their lightsaber and Star Wars powers, and as soon as they saw a real battle and real conflict, they would flee and run or just be killed. And so he recognizes what they can handle. He recognizes that they're still in this maturation stage and they need more time. And so he takes them down south in a way that the Israelites don't expect. And so he goes from Ramses to Succoth and then camps at Etham, and then says, I want you guys to turn around and go back a little bit the way that you came and go camp in front of the Red Sea. And I imagine, much like a, uh, um, a bride that questions their groom um, or a wife that questions her husband that he doesn't know where he's going when he always does, right? Doesn't Even if he doesn't, he'll never admit that. At least I won't. So... You can imagine what they're thinking. They're going down south, away from where they're supposed to go, away from the promise that God had made them. Now they're going back over the territory they've just gone over. What is going on? You're lost, Moses. But if it wasn't for the presence of God with them in the form of a, a cloud pillar by day and a fire pillar by night, you know that they'd be crying out to Moses going, you freak, you don't know where you're going. But you can't deny... That God is leading this way. That his presence is there. And I'm sure Moses is very appreciative of that fact. Because I know that they would be quick to plow their own path. And so. It would be foolish though. At least at this point. Knowing the pillar is leading them. For the Israelites to go actually away from the road that they're being led on. Even if it doesn't seem to make sense in the time. Because. It would be clear and obvious that if they were to go down a different road, they would be going down the road that God did not want them to go. It would be obvious if no more than other time in history, right now, God's there, I'm going this way, I'm obviously not going the way of God. And going your own way and clearing your own path away from God is not just sinful, it's just plain stupid. And I think sometimes when what happens here, apparently, is that God leads them into what amounts to a dead end. And there's, I think, two different kinds of dead ends. When you get to a dead end and it looks like there are no other options you know, to, to take, no, no roads to go, it, this is where it is. The first thing I think that we all need to ask ourselves is, have I been on God's road to begin with? Because if you're led into a dead end, there's a very good chance that you're there because the pillar's back there. And you started to plow your own path and think, well, this will lead all kinds of ways to the dead end here. Man, no kidding. It doesn't really surprise anyone that when you walked away from God and started to plow your own path, that uh, your own path wasn't necessarily God's. And so I think in those cases, you confess that you're lost. You admit that you don't know how to get where you're going, and you get on God's road. But what happens to the people who are on God's road and are following God's way and are doing what God asked them to do and they still come to a dead end? You still come to a place where you look and go, okay, what now? There's no more road. God, I've been following you in this pillar and look what it ended up with, a dead end. I think the mentality that's difficult to understand because we're human and sinful and broken is that in God's world, in God's economy, in God's plan, there are no dead ends. It's apparently a dead end, but it's actually not. And I see that phrase like, oh, Lord, but pray that the doors will open. The doors will open. You know, you hear that all the time, right? Nothing wrong with that. It's well-intended. But I think sometimes we're waiting so long for doors to open that we aren't looking around for the doors that are obviously already there. I see that door, but I don't like that one. So I'm going to pray that a door will open that leads me in a direction that I will enjoy. And so the dead ends that, that are apparently dead ends, I think that we need to understand that they're not. And just because it's not working the way we intended with our wisdom, and just because it's not enjoyable, just because it's not pain-free, doesn't mean that God doesn't have you exactly where He wants you. That's assuming you've been on God's road to begin with. So, Exodus 14 begins. We'll see what happens to this dead end. Verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piha Hidoth. I don't know if you say it right, but it sounds good and you say it fast and it works. <laughs> Between Migdal and in front of baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, this is God speaking to Moses, Quote, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness to shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this that we have done? We have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariot of Egypt with officers over all of them. And Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. And the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Piharoth, okay, in front of Baal Zephon. Now God's purpose, he says, for this apparent dead end, is to get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and really declare who he is before the world. That makes me feel better, doesn't it? That's a phrase that we like to use all the time. It's for God's glory. And there's truth in it. Don't get me wrong. It is true. But it doesn't always change the way I feel about things. And it's not the first time that God has declared that his ultimate purpose for the Exodus, and really for all of life and all of your creation for that matter, is his glory. All of creation is to declare His glory. And it's noteworthy He says that He doesn't have the primary purpose of liberating Israel. That's an effect of what happens, but that's not His primary purpose. It is to declare and magnify His greatness and His mercy and His power and His love and His wrath and His justice. To declare His name completely. The objective is to make himself known. But in doing so, and this is the part that's difficult for us, in doing that, he makes much of Israel. God's glory and our joy, we think, are mutually exclusive. It's going to be one or the other. My joy is not going to necessarily end up in God's glory, when in fact they are inseparable. It's a lie to believe that they are exclusive. They are inseparable. When God is magnified, when God is glorified, there is true, eternal, deep, rich joy. And the fact, the fact is that the declaration of God's greatness, even in this way, always results in the blessing of His people. So you start asking questions like, well, why does God lead the way He leads, if we're actually following Him, for His glory? Why does he allow suffering for his glory? Why does he allow temptation for his glory? Why did he allow Adam and Eve to eat that apple? For his glory. It's all for his greatness and his glory, which will all result in our joy. And so, like a masterful chess player, he sets the stage for Pharaoh, who when he hears the report that Israel has fled, Maybe he half believed that after three days they would actually come back after all of those plagues and asking to be released. And when they don't, he gets inflamed with pride again. And he gathers his 600 chariots, most likely. It might not have been quite 600, but certainly a number of chariots that had probably two to three guys on each one a driver and a couple warriors. And it doesn't seem that he's going in with an extraction force to bring them back for slavery again. He's going to wipe them out. He's going to kill them. And the evil oppressor who is hardened and hell-bent on destroying is allowed to pursue Israel. For God's glory. Just as Satan is allowed to tempt us. Allowed to lie to us perhaps, fill us with false hopes, even trick us into an easier life, all with the goal to destroy us and all by God's grace used for His glory. But the goal is to kill. And like Pharaoh, our enemy knows who God is. He's seen what he can do and he just does not care. The cause of Satan's fall is the same That happened to our first parents, which is pride. And sin is a dark, dark thing. It is unrelenting. It is not satisfied ever. And it is not rational. You can read the daily paper and you read stuff and you go, who could do that? No one but the sin through a man. It is that dark. And Satan attacks not because he's going to succeed, not because he wants anything, but to disrupt the order of and bring chaos to God's creation. It's kind of like the uh, the Joker and Batman, which I thought was a, a good, very good um, portrayal of what sin does to someone. And don't for a second think that we're not Joker. That's the catch. We like to go, oh, that's whoa, what a simple man. That's what sin is. Yeah, that's you and me. We like to be the people, innocent people on the boat that are going to be saved. Wrong. That is what we're all capable of. And it's evil for the purposes of evil. Corruption for the sake of corruption. Perversion for the sake of perversion. That's what sin does. It's not rational. It does not make sense. That's why I cannot fix it from some external thing. And so, as they come, in verse 10, it says this, Pharaoh drew near, and the people of Israel lift up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So when we see the pain coming, and we're in this apparent dead end, it's in that moment that the fear comes. When we feel vulnerable, when our imagination starts to go wild about what's going to happen. although It hasn't happened yet, just the imagination of what's going to happen. And we're put into a situation where the odds seem impossible, where there appear to be no alternatives except to sin to get out of it. If I surrender to sin, that's, that's, what am I supposed to do? That's it. I mean, how quickly do we forget who God is, what He has done, how faithful He has been, how He's protected, how He has led, how He's loved, and we go, sin's the only option. It's the only way I can get out of this, this dead end that God would never intend for me to be in. The Israelites see the armies approaching without a clear escape route, without God saying, this is going to happen, you haven't said anything yet. As they approach and he allows the armies to line up and they see them all. And they most likely have come through if the place of where they think they cross is correct in this cavern Where there's, not a cavern, but a a valley with large cliffs. And so they cannot run away. Ain't going to swim no hundred plus mile wide Red Sea. They cry out for help. They cry out to God for help. And it's not their fearful cries that's the problem. Because fear is not sin. Fear is not sinful. Anger is not sinful. What... A number of feelings are not sinful. But the question is, what happens or how do you react to those feelings? I feel this way. Now what? I'm scared. Now what? It's okay to be scared. I get scared. My son gets scared. People get scared. Seeing an army of 600 chariots and I'm holding a broomstick, I'm scared. It's okay to be scared. Then what? In the case of the Israelites, they turn to Moses and they play the same blame game that Adam and Eve started playing. And they start pointing their finger at Moses. And in pointing their finger at Moses, they're really pointing it at God. And they say, are there no graves in Egypt? You have to take us out of here so you can have enough holes to bury all two million of us? And it's as if they're crying out to God that you're going to kill us. This is going to kill me, God. This situation is too dire. I'm going to die if I don't sin. If I don't give in. This is going to kill me. And our mind goes into the worst case scenario possible. But the Bible clearly says that God will never put you in a situation of which there's not a way of escape. He will never tempt you beyond what you are capable. There will always be a way out. There will always be a right choice even if it's not the easiest one. There will clearly be a right one. God is not trying to kill you. He's not trying to kill me when He puts us in, leads us into dead ends. He wants to kill sin. Sin is trying to kill you. He wants to kill what's separating you from Him. And then He also, why have you brought us out? Why did you even bring us out here? you know what you're doing, Moses? To God, they're pretty much saying, you're not really in control, are you? We deny that God could have possibly accounted for the situation. This is way out of what God expected. He's up there going, crap, didn't see that one coming. Though the Bible clearly teaches that He knows everything, though he is outside of time, though he numbers the hairs on of head, though he knew it's in the womb, though he knew it's before the foundation of the world, though he knows the day we'll die and how and when, for whatever reason, we dismiss God's omniscience in that moment. He must not be in control. He's not sovereign anymore. There's no way he would have put me into this situation. No way. God can't lead me into a dead end. And pretty much you're just pulling that out of you-know-what because it ain't in the Bible. God very well could lead you into a dead end. The point is, it ain't no dead end. He's always in control even when things feel out of control. Even if you've walked away from Him and gone down your own road, God is so stinking gracious He pursues you, grabs you by the back of your collar, and pulls you back onto His. That's how much He loves you. Even when it feels out of control, he is leading us. It only feels out of control because you forgot who's leading you. And you think you know more than Him. The last thing they say to Him is, Serving the Egyptians would have been so much better. Didn't we tell you this? No, they didn't. They were crying out to God for redemption. They wanted to be free. But we cry out to God when we get into these apparent dead ends. We say, oh, life, would have, it was so much better before I knew you, God. Before I was a Christian, before I was doing it your way, things were better. Forgetting what our slavery was like. Imagining, romanticizing it like, oh, it wasn't that bad. I mean, it was a couple of bad scars. Some beatings. I mean, yeah, they threw our babies in the river. I mean, that wasn't so bad, you guys. But we play that game, and for a moment, we really believe that the life of sin that was killing us, that was painful, that gave us no purpose, that made us wake up every morning and go, "Why live? What's the point? What's better? What's better?" It's true. It is not a lie. The Christian life has pain. If the Christian life is supposed to be modeled after Christ, there's going to be suffering. But it's a different kind of pain. Because a life of sin leads to pain that, is, that will kill you. It will kill you. It will always lead to destruction. It will always lead to death. But the pain that comes with faithfulness always leads to joy, even in death even in death. Death has lost its sting. I no longer fear it. So Moses responds to the people's cries, though. And I really like Moses. I really like Moses because he's a lot like me, which might mean just really impatient. But I'm learning to be empathetic. But don't for a second think, as Moses responds to these people, he's like, Hey! Christian pep talk! All right, guys, gather around. We're going to have faith. No, 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 no. He is not being so kind. He is not being so gentle. He has dealt with these faithless people for a long time. And he's going to deal with them more, murmuring that's going to come later. But he is not sharing words of comfort here. He's, in fact, telling them to shut up and have faith. Sit there and watch God work. Have some stinking faith. And there are times, and I'm getting better at it, where people need comfort when things get scary. Where people just need someone to cry with. And I understand that. I'm there. Sometimes words don't help at all. And all you need to do is a hug. I totally understand that. And sometimes you need encouragement to say, you know what? There is a better way. But sometimes, people need to be told flat on their face, have faith, believe, quit freaking out. Be strong. Be a warrior. Do you know who your God is? Be silent. Quit your complaining and be still and know that there's a God. I mean... We can pick up the newspaper and go to Google News or wherever you happen to find, and you can get lots of fear. Fear of the economy, fear you're going to lose your job, fear you're going to eat some peanut butter and bust out in boils. I mean, there's all kinds of fear you could have. Your, Your world is filled with fear. But at what point, at what point do we stop? And I think it's now. Do we stop and say, before I'm an American, before I'm Republican or Democrat, Before I'm employed or unemployed. I am a Christian. I am a child of God who loves me. I am a son of the creator of the universe who knows. Romans 8 is the most beautiful passage about this. Verse 31 and following says this. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or economy, or peanut butter? No! In verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, I don't know what else He list. nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And yet we sit and we go, dead end. It's not a dead end. Shut up and have faith. That's all that needs to be said sometimes. Verse 15. The Lord speaks back. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of a cloud moved from them before and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and a darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And so, the Lord speaks to Moses. And it seems like, you know, Moses hasn't complained at this point. He's kind of giving Moses, uh, you know short end of the stick. He's like, why are you crying? I think he's just speaking to Moses as a representative of all these people. And he says, why are you crying? Why don't you trust me? Why don't you trust me? I mean, there's nothing wrong with fear. There's nothing wrong with fear until you fear the circumstance or the possibilities more than God. That's when fear becomes a problem. And so God directs. He tells him, start walking towards the water. He hasn't divided it yet. That's how it works, huh? We know exactly the direction. Okay, wait a second. If I start walking that way, I get wet. And it's like 100 miles of wetness. Really deep. I'm going to drown. Walk! Go! And they start moving. As they start walking, he lifts the staff and it's divided. And the land opens up, or see, the sea opens up. And that pillar that was leading them now goes behind them and protects them from this army that's coming. And you've got to think, I always like to think of what the Egyptians were thinking at this point, because they must be so... Just immersed in pride and anger because there's a pillar of fire and cloud sitting sitting before them, and you got to know they're standing like going, um, "Hey, Abdul, you've seen this before? I mean, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it is." Looking around, like, maybe we should rethink this, you know? But no, they sit there even though. The far side is lit as they go across, and their side's darkness. That's what sin is like. That's what oppression is. It just doesn't make sense. And as it stands there, these two million people that probably walk on average about two, three miles per hour have to walk about a hundred miles. Plus. Start going over with their kids. I mean, it's hard enough to get your kids out of the car into here, okay? Imagine walking in the middle of a sea on dry land with your cattle. and you know it's, it's a lot. It takes a long time. So God gives them that time, it seems. And in verse 21, read, it says this, And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right and right hand on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all the Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. and the morning watch, the Lord and the pillar and the fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels. They drove heavily, and the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, and the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course. And when the morning appeared, as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and their left hand. And thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the land of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And I love imagining as they walk, they don't actually see the end that's coming. The widest part of the Red Sea is 190 miles. Probably wasn't exactly where they crossed, but it was still over 100 miles. And they just saw dry land open up and started walking, not knowing exactly what was going to happen next. We believe like once we make the step of faith, okay, I did my step of faith, that's it. Life is a series of steps of faith. And so they go into dry land, and as they go, eventually the chariots come in. And if you read Psalm 77, it describes what it's like. And as soon as the chariots come in, the dry ground suddenly becomes mucky. And the chariots get stuck and they're breaking and lightning comes and earthquakes and all kinds. of God's making it hard for them. And they get confused and chaotic. And as they're confused, Moses lifts up the staff again. And the water starts to come pouring in. And they're so confused, the Bible says, They run into the water, toward it. They don't know what's going on. And they are completely decimated in the most powerful way. Yes, it's the destruction of Egypt, but it's a picture of what God has done to sin completely. And all they see left are these dead bodies floating. And they know, as they stand on the other side of the sea, they are truly free. Now, the Exodus story is the story of salvation for the Jews. It's the story that celebrates the story that God said, remember, remember, remember what I did to redeem you, to free you. And it's the foreshadowing of our story that climaxes on a wooden cross outside of Jerusalem hundreds of years later. And in the same way that Egypt is destroyed, And they are taken out of Egypt. We are taken out of our slavery. And sin and death are destroyed on that cross in the same way. But the Exodus story of the Old Testament should not. It should not be used as the inspirational, encouraging story for every time we go through something hard. And what I mean is that every difficult situation we have isn't just like, that's my personal Egypt Every bad person we run into isn't like, well, that's my Pharaoh. Believing that, I think God is going to deliver us from every bad thing that happens. The New Testament is clear that suffering is part of life. And it is to be endured. It is to be learned from. It is part of discipline. Without question, it even can be rejoiced in. But it is a story of victory. I I, I recognize that. I'm not saying it's not victorious. But it's not a story to teach us that God will win every single one of our battles for us. It is the story, if anything, the record to remind us that God has won the battle for us. He has won the biggest war already we are not to sit and wait for deliverance, but to recognize and live as if we are a delivered and free people. Because on the cross, God destroyed sin, and the dead bodies that might be floating in the Red Sea are our bodies. That's our old self. Gone, buried. We are new people. We have a new identity. We have been taken from out of Egypt, from out of sin, and we are placed in Christ. Our zip code has changed. Not, our zip code, I'm aiming towards that. No, it's changed. Your world, if you are in Christ, if you accept that Christ died for your sins took your place on the cross, gives you His perfect sinless life, that He raised from the dead to prove it. If you believe those things, your life and everything in it is redefined. The Bible says that we are loved in Jesus. We are forgiven in Jesus. We are reconciled in Jesus. You are made righteous in Jesus. You are approved in Jesus. You are established in Jesus. You are set free in Jesus. You have peace in Jesus. We are brought together as brothers and sisters in this place in Jesus. We walk now in Jesus. We conquer all things in Jesus. We speak truth in Jesus. We hope in Jesus. We live in Jesus. And we worship Jesus. That's our identity First and foremost, despite what road we're on or how many dead ends it might look like. Instead of thinking about being freed from our Egypt, we must recognize that our Egypt's behind us and that every other road that doesn't go through the cross is not alluring to us, is not attractive to us because we know that to go on any other road, it will lead to death. It will lead to despair. Despite what it seems like. Despite how you might be able to justify that in your mind. Slavery is better. It's not. It will lead to a harshness and a pain that will destroy you. Our Egypt is behind us. Our oppressor is dead. We are now living for those who are in Christ on the other side of the sea with an amazing adventure to live as we worship God through everything that we do, knowing that even the most difficult decisions, the most difficult ones, though they are hard, though we can imagine all the possibilities that might happen, God has said, that is right. And I am glorified. And you will have joy. Quit being scared. And have faith. And what that results in, if you look in the next chapter, which we'll study next week, is Exodus 15. The very first thing we go, okay, so now what do I do? You worship. You sing and you worship. Not because God will accept you if you do, but because God has already accepted you and it's our response. I pray today for those people who are on a dead end road that you don't Really know how you got there. Ask yourself, have you been following God? Have you chosen His road? Are you plowing your own and plowing a new one and a new one when that doesn't work out and a new one when that doesn't work out? I pray that you will repent. You confess Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And you will join us for communion as you declare that He made a way and you just have to accept it. And for those who are Christians, who are in Christ, and you're on a dead-end road, and you don't know what to do, have faith. I don't have to convince you. I don't need to persuade you. Do not fear. God's way will lead to joy. It will. We'll celebrate communion today as we lift the bread and the cup to declare... We didn't know the way. We are lost and God did. God be praised. And then we will sing to Him in response. For He is great. Let's pray. Father God, I confess that I do not know how to make the right decisions all the time. I confess, Lord, that my decisions are often away from You. I confess, Lord, that I have placed myself on a dead-end road at times. And I pray that You will save me. That, Lord, You will take those things that I fear, the feelings that I have, and You will conform them to Your will, that I might feel and desire those things that You would have me do. Father, I pray your spirit will come and put that in the hearts of everyone who is here today. And that you will help us to follow you, Father, come thick or thin. That first and foremost, Lord, we are worshipers of the one creator. The one who sent his son to die for us. And we will not fear the fears of this world. Father, we declare that it is not true that fearing fear itself is the big deal. Lord, let us fear you and you alone. May you be praised and may your son be glorified today. Amen.